My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Joe Norman. Joe is the founder and chief scientist at Applied Complexity Science, LLC, and the author of the uh, occasional Applied Complexity newsletter, um, promised monthly, delivered occasionally. <laughs> oh, welcome, Joe. Thank you, Alex. I uh, really appreciate the invite and appreciate your flexibility in scheduling. I know I was a, a bit of a pain in the ass and uh, bounced us around a bit, but I'm, I'm glad we're finally able to, to sit down and talk. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy to to have you on. Um, I mean, no worries about scheduling. I'm I'm at a, at a painful hour for anyone in, in that part of the world. So you're not the first person to postpone this a little bit because like it's kind of in the middle of people's day. Um, but uh, I'm I'm a, a kind of an avid follower of your Twitter and also of of your wife Chelsea's Twitter. Uh, it's it's quite different, but uh, very very wholesome and and very full of uh, signal. Um, and I'm I'm excited to talk to you about uh, complexity, about the thing that you are known for and the thing that you know more about than than most people. So, um, my my first question is about something in this space that I've been thinking about quite a lot lately. It's about how society, um, at what level of abstraction society models humans. And I know this sounds really, really weird, but I, I'm referring kind of to this vision that we have about the individual. We model society at the level of the individual, but there's not really any conception, I feel, in, in kind of what we call now neoliberalism for um, a, a different scale. Like, for example, maybe modeling society as kind of like a super organism so I'm, I'm curious what your feeling is about this. Like, um, is there any benefit to to thinking about ourselves in a different way, or is that even possible? Or are we kind of stuck with this frame of you know being individuals, interacting with individuals, and th does this frame kind of magically result in, in the best results? A great question, and and you know, th there's a lot of different questions embedded in there. One thing, and, and this actually came up in a, in a Twitter conversation just the other day, and I and it gave me an insight that that was sort of there, but 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 was was kind of latent and, and brought to the surface. One thing is that if if we kind of only consider this this level of the individual as sort of primary and 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 um, unquestionable, and there, there's nothing that is or should be uh, larger scale than that, then sort of ironically, we end up with a situation where the only kinds of collective behaviors that do emerge are these kind of mass coherent behaviors where everybody is doing the same thing, sort of mass conformity. So, so one of the things that I'm seeing more and more is that we're really not like, like when we think about, you know, to be frank, I'm not great with these terms, neoliberalism and things like that. I never know exactly what they mean. So I try, I try to avoid them. But, but the general idea of kind of uh, the individual is the essence of things. It's the always the appropriate level of analysis and and that's how it is and that's how it ought to be. I think what that's delivered to us is for some folks that's sort of the case of their life. They, they behave as an individual. They, um, they kind of do things uh, without um, 
coordinating tightly with others, et cetera, et cetera. But then we have things like what we see on the other side, which, which is kind of this wokeism, if you will, where you have a mass coherence. It's very much collectivist, but it's collectivist in a very non-nuanced way. It's everybody doing the same thing, everybody having the same opinions, everybody kind of collapsing onto one way of life, one way of viewing the world and one way of acting. So it's not that we've, with, through this, this kind of arc of neoliberalism, it's not that we've come to this place where we're all simply atomized individuals and that's how we're actually behaving it's kind of gone around the other side where without what you might think of as intermediate structures, things like local community, um, and then and then sort of gradations beyond there. So you have, you know, individual, say family, local community, village, town, city, region, nation, maybe, you know, globe eventually. Um, all of these levels have their own, in, in, in the most, uh, organic unfolding of things, they would all have their own kind of tangible uh, existence to them. They're all legitimate. There's no primary level of analysis. And, and this is something that that's flows uh, very naturally from complexity science, the fact that there's multiple scales of structure and there's not one that explains everything or, or that everything can be reduced to. Um, so now we're ending up with this kind of very um, bipolar, not bipolar in the sense of, of say left versus right or progressive versus conservative, but bipolar in the sense of atomized individuals or mass coherence collective behavior um, without the nuanced uh, levels in between those. And I think that's what we're ultimately missing that we've uh, historically had just incidentally by the, by the course of, of ecosystems and nature, the, the, those things arise naturally. But the, in the hollowing out of these, we haven't just ended up with atomized individuality. We've also ended up with kind of mass mob behavior, if you will. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question exactly, but that, yeah. that's something that, that's kind of coming to the surface for me in a, in a really explicit way. Yeah, um, that, that, that makes it, sense in, in the sense that, you know, through through this process of atomization that you describe, kind of the, the only thing left is this, you know, the, this massive coherence phenomena that in a way is advocating for the individual. Because I mean, what what is wokeness except for like the, the, the militant arm of, of individualism, you know, kind of advocating for people to be more um, more individual in the sense of kind of like freeing themselves from the body, you know, becoming this uh, self-making self where you can, you know, kind of customize your uh, your existence through different identities, you know, that are chosen. They're all kind of rationally mm -hmm. freely chosen by you. So it's um, in a way it's kind of a, a liberatory movement but in in a strange way it's it's also kind of the, almost the most collectivist thing that we can we can produce like it's it's quite coherent quite uh yeah quite centralized in in that way right and and you know one of the things so i i have this this issue where when i'm kind of addressing uh the ideas from the left i often find that there's a kernel of truth in them um but that the way they're kind of operationalized is is not not right and um so for instance like you brought up oh this sort of what you've called self-making self well that's interesting because what does make the self well in a very uh material sense selves are self-producing and self-maintaining that's that's kind of what biology is in a way it's like where am I being made from well I'm not like a car there's no car maker who manufacturer comes and puts my parts together I actually am generating myself. You're generating yourself. Societies are the same way. They self-generate. 
when they're functional. They, I think we're in a place now where they're kind of not doing that. We're kind of on a transient trajectory to who knows where, but um, there's, and, and just sort of um, taking that maybe to another layer of abstraction, kind of what you're suggesting is there's this arbitrariness uh, in this kind of mental model of, of how things are that because I'm self-generating, I can self-generate to be whatever I want to be, whatever I choose to be. So I think there's this, this you know, in, in kind of postmodern rhetoric, there's a lot of discussion uh, around what's constructed, socially constructed and so on. And I think that that's true, that we construct many things about the world. We, we are building the world in many ways in our world. But the, the conflation that I detect that happens here is that because something is constructed, it's arbitrary. And those two things do not actually go together. That's that those are not the same and they, they become conflated. I mean, just as a really simplified example, imagine uh, that, okay, so we've discovered pyramids all over the world, right? Now say we go and discover a pyramid that's standing on its tip. Okay, you're not gonna discover that pyramid. It's not stable, it's gonna tip over, right? So, so just the fact that we, we have constructed pyramids doesn't mean you can construct anything, any, any shape, any structure, any geometry. There's constraints uh, that the world uh, uh, kind of gives us, however they, they come. And what's constructed then has to in some way uh, fit into those constraints and, and, and respect them if it's to persist. Obviously, you can try to build a pyramid on its tip and the breeze comes and, and, and blows it over. But um, yeah, so, so I think it's really important that we acknowledge that, no, we actually are constructing a lot of what the world is, but that doesn't mean we can construct anything whatsoever and, and expect it to, to work. Exactly. Yeah. I think um, that's kind of a, an area that people, yeah, misconstrue the, the emergence of a lot of what is socially constructed. Like for example, a lot of the, the chat is about, you know, the categories of female and male and, you know, all these gender roles that are socially constructed. They are socially constructed, they are socially reinforced, but they are emergent from the biological substrate, like in, in most in most cases and in, in and they, ways they have that... relations to it, to be sure. And and you know, that doesn't mean that we can sit here and say what are all the possibilities of, of functional conceptualizations around things like male and female. There might be uh, reasonable constructions that are different than the ones we're used to operating in that are legitimate themselves. When we get to these kinds of discussions, where I see the issue is not so much uh, that people shouldn't explore and tinker and see what might work, but that uh, uh, the, the tendency to, to try to um, bring others into conformity with that vision. It's, it's the coercive aspect that, that I find problematic. If, if you know, there's, there are, and I'm no expert in this, but I know there are some ancient traditions. I know where there are some kind of gender bending type of roles that, that are played in, in social systems and they persisted and they had a, had a function, uh, presumably. And so I, I can't, my imagination and no one's is big enough to imagine all of the possibilities of how these things could fit together. Um, you know, a, a, a uh, the way an elephant works is very different than the way a butterfly works. They both exist. Um, so, so yeah, my, my issue is, is, is sort of the reduction to an imagined, uh, system or structure, and then trying to impose that on a large swath of people. I think that's where it becomes, uh, for me, you know, to, to borrow the word problematic. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I feel like, um, 
for, for an identity to be real for a lot of people, you know, the, the, the realness of it comes from it being um, accepted and, and, you know, that category being accepted by other people. So I feel like that's that's kind of the, you know, in a way it kind of has to be coercive um, for for it to actually take take shape. I know obviously I'm I'm not for it. Uh, I understand why people kind of want to to make these kind of um, rights revolutions where they you know they they invent I don't know invent a category or there's a category emerging, uh, and then they they want it to be widely used and yeah there's yeah, widely acknowledged and i mean i think the the operative term there is actually widely it's like because widely used to mean like i don't know my friends and family and now widely means everyone on twitter and it's like that's that's you can't get everyone to do the same thing across the entire globe and it would be disastrous if you did um so yeah yeah no no i totally agree and i so 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 back to kind of your original question yes we we are we are individuals in, in many important ways. We are part of very real collective structures. Um, and, and indeed things like identity, uh, people are seeking acknowledgement and, and, and not, it's really, that's kind of shows you, it's not really about merely the isolated individual, but how it fits into the, to a larger system. Um, and, and it's the largeness of, of our systems now that are the main problem, not, not necessarily any uh, particular character um, that exists within them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. And you talk about this all the time uh, about the issue of scale. And I I, I wonder um, what what is your feeling? Are you a techno optimist given the 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 situation that we we're in now? Because you know everything's at scale. You know the complexity is absolutely unmappable. Um, what what's your feeling about the future of technology and the the way it, it functions now and kind of the trajectory that you see? Well, I don't think I'm a techno optimist. Um, you'd have to tell me exactly what you mean by that. I don't think I am. Um, probably pretty definitively not one. Um, if anything, I probably lean more towards being a Luddite. Um, you know, where we're, where we're at now is that all, all of our technology now, it used to be that technology was, was um, about solving a problem you have locally, about doing something with, with more local efficiency, kind of fitting into whatever the con constraints are and, 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 and uh, uh, cutting out some of the, the grunt work of it. But, but it, you know, through the, the 20th and into the 21st century now, tech, the main trajectory of technology has been connectivity, physical connectivity, informational connectivity. And what we're seeing now is that connectivity is not an unmitigated good. There's a lot of risks that come along with it. There's a lot of, of costs associated with it. Um, if you talk to economists, you'll hear a lot about economies of scale. Well, we're now starting to experience the diseconomies of scale. It's not for free. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm not an optimist in the sense that I don't know where we're going. I'm also not a pessimist because I don't know where we're going. But what's clear to me is what we need to learn to do is to uh, self-limit our own degree of connectivity um, so that we don't end up with a disaster. And so far, I haven't seen any evidence that we're able to do that very well. Um, but if we don't learn to do that, it's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be increasingly a problem. I mean, w regardless of whatever one's views are on, on the COVID situation the policies, whatever, what's clear is that um, why did it happen the way it happened? It's because of how connected we are. Uh, it's and, and associated with that. It's because of our refusal 
to uh, disconnect at any time. Um, and also the way we've set up the infrastructure so that um, it's, it interrupts a lot of essential processes to disconnect. You know, if, if the, the food is flowing from, from Alaska to China to the East Coast of the US, something like that, which it sounds ridiculous, but happens all the time, things like that. Um, then all of a sudden, if you need to interrupt those flows, you have a lot of new problems to solve. Um, so we need to become willing to disconnect and we need to take away the stigma of uh, disconnection, disconnecting as such. It's, it's been stigmatized, uh, you know, it's xenophobic, it's this and that. In the beginning of COVID, we saw this. I mean, there was a huge, it's easy, everyone seems to forget now, there was a huge political flip-flop on COVID. Like the, like the whole social system, there was originally, you know, uh, there was people like me who were saying, this thing doesn't look good in China. Uh, understanding how 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 uh, multiplicative uh, agents behave, i.e., they grow exponentially and they spread rapidly, especially in connected world. It was obvious we need to disconnect right now. So, you know, maybe it will turn out it's not that big a deal. Now we reconnect. Okay, maybe it turns out it's a bigger deal, and we are glad we disconnected. Well, it was xenophobic, it was racist, etc. In January, February, twenty twenty to not want to mill about in, a, in, in Chinatown, to not want to uh, uh, have, you know, ceaseless flights coming in from all over the world. One day, I mean, it was literally like one day, whoop, complete flip-flop of, of, of the positions on COVID. And, and it became, you know, a tool for, for the centralizers to, to uh, uh, start enforcing socialism on us and this and that. And, you know, people obviously, all politicians, what they're doing is taking what's happening and trying to leverage it to, to, to their agenda. Um, so, so um, yeah, there's, so COVID is one example, pandemic more generally. There's a very strong conservative case for uh, pandemic mitigation via border control. I wish that conservatives, the right, whatever you wanna call it, took that and ran with it and they should have, and they still should. But it completely went out the window. Now it's all about masks, no masks, whatever. Um, but guess what? It's not going to be the last pandemic. And you know, the, to the degree we're we're connected, it probably won't be the last pandemic in our lifetimes. And uh, COVID is just the tip of the iceberg. So yeah, absolutely. I it's 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 interesting to me that you say you know there's a there's a conservative case to be made. Uh, I think the conservatives are kind of starting to wake up to the fact that, you know, economic libertarianism, like, you know, Koch brothers flavored uh, libertarianism in the markets is probably not the thing that's going to maintain, you know, the whatever nuclear family or whatever remnants of, of, of conservative uh, ideals that they had. So I think there's a big contingent of them flipping the script and, and becoming, I don't know if protectionist, protectionist is like a heavy word. It's like capitalism. It's, you know, it's, it's something that's you know, invented by its enemies. Uh, but the idea that you kind of have to think about local benefit before, uh, before the abstract interests of, you know, a, the corporation or the business sector or something like that. So um, I wanted to, to ask you about libertarianism because you have a very nuanced view of libertarianism. You're not a libertarian, which I think is a, a good idea. Um, but you know, why why are you not a libertarian? Um, well, for one thing, I'm not a libertarian because I, I I pretty much refuse to identify with any label like that because it just gets co-opted, captured, morphs over time, etc. The closest I could become to being captured by a label is is localist, but even there, I see that starting to um, 
I don't want to say get away from me because that sounds like I'm trying to control it and I'm not, but it, it's, it's, it changes depending on who's using it. It morphs. And I, I, I just think labels have, have this problem where, uh, the, the fight becomes about the labels instead of whatever we're trying to do. So why am I not a libertarian? That's one reason. Uh, some of the things we talk about, sort of this vision as the atomistic individual um, and, and the idea that that's sufficient to, um, to structure a, a society um, at that scale and with that as the primary interest. You know, I am a libertarian in many ways, I should say that. Um, and, and for instance, I think that... Um, the way that you get multi-scale structures, family, community, et cetera, is actually leaving people alone. Stop interfering with everything. Stop trying to guide them, nudge them, top down them, et cetera. So um, in that sense, I'm very much a libertarian, but, but the freedom should be to choose one's, uh, one's structure they bind into, which is something that's very non-individualistic. Um, uh, being part of something, in fact, uh, implies constraining the part where the part is the individual in this case. Um, and, and then, you know, so, so there's sort of this abstract libertarianism and then there's libertarians. And I think we're seeing a really interesting thing right now with this uh, sort of libertarian party uh, versus the, the Mises uh, caucus that's emerging. And, and it's an interesting uh, kind of push and pull happening here. And, um, you know, one, for instance, one of the consequences of, of the sort of libertarian party end of this is that if you're imagining that everything should be handled by market forces, every and, and that should all be the individual scale, that private entities are uh, an inherent good because they're operating over these market structures, et cetera, you end up with, with uh, absurd uh, policy positions like open borders positions that are frankly just nonsense. Because if we look at, at, at how complex systems are able to persist in the real world, at what were the kinds of things that evolution produces, guess what? One of the basic pattern structures that is necessary are boundaries and borders from cells to organisms to, to families and societies, nations, et cetera. So, so boundaries and borders are part of the logic of, of how complexity can actually um, manage itself and, and, and persist into something that, that, that is, is uh, healthy and, and uh, long lived. Um, so, so I guess there's a lot of reasons I'm not a libertarian, but I'm also, uh, I'm libertarian leaning and um, mostly that's uh, an anti top down intervention imposition uh, type of type of leaning that I have. And that is in part so that um, communities can form. And um, yeah, right. With sort of the everything is Walmart, everything is the market, um, is is really antithetical to that local community, uh, the emergence of and self organization of that kind of a structure. So, yeah, yeah. No, I I, I probably echo that position in a way. I'm also not, uh, you know, uh, pro pro government at at like a, a large scale. You know, the idea. I mean, I'm I'm from Eastern Europe. I'm from, my my family grew up under under communism. I was born under communism. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't feel that it's not that hot, guys. <laughs> but well, well, yeah. Again, actually, what you get when you scale these private enterprises up too much you get pseudo governmental type of institutions. And, and, you know, you maybe you've seen that sort of uh, 
that sort of the, the don't tread on me snake with like the Coca-Cola and Walmart and whoever else kind of stomping on it. Like, oh, it's at least it's not the government, you know. So, you know, you, you kind of brought up in the beginning, I'm very scale sensitive. And, and when you scale these entities, they become something different. You know, it's it, it's absurd to say that like uh, mom and pop's pizzeria down the street is a private enterprise. So they're directly comparable to the Walmarts of the world, to, to the Monsantos of the world. They're not the same kind of thing. They're completely different animals. And, and a lot of libertarians are very blind to that. As long as it's not labeled the state, they're, they're kind of like, okay, yeah, sure. Do what you want. I mean, you're private entity, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting how, um, you know, once, once a corporation reaches a certain level of scale, it becomes almost necessarily a public private partnership between it and the state, you know, it it starts, you know, lobbying uh, favors, freezing out, you know, competition, you know, making sure the mom and pop store is not long for this world. Um, and at one point, it's very hard to disentangle who's who uh, in, in certain circles, like, you know, Washington, DC, like, who, who's the lobbyist and who's the politician, they all kind of are eating from the same trough. That's exactly right, Alex. And, and I mean, that's, so when I have this discussion with, with uh, self-professed libertarians, they tend to say, well, the reason that large corporations are able to do this is because of the state. If you just took care of the state, then the problem would take care of itself. And they're not seeing what you're seeing, which is actually, these are completely entangled. It's an irreducible complex. And, and you know, if you had very large corporations that you refuse to address and you have uh, the state on the other hand, and you're only addressing the state, well, guess what? Every time you try to shrink it, the corporates will, will blow it back up again. So it's not going to deflate on its own. You have to kind of uh, deflate them together. Um, it, it, it is a complex. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's another question I wanted to ask you. Um, when you have uh, institutions at scale, be they, you know, state or, um, or even, you know, uh, private institutions, um, is there a chance once they reach, you know, a certain tipping point and maybe if, you know, today, 2021, look at looking at these institutions, is there a chance to deflate them in the sense of, you know, kind of re recapturing the institutions, you know, st streamlining them, decomplexifying them, or is the, 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 the better chance to create parallel institutions? So a kind of like voice versus exit type of, of question. Is there uh, a, a better, um, should people just, you know, kind of mind their own business and kind of circumvent, circumvent the, the big boys? I mean, I guess I don't see those as distinctly uh, different. Um, you know, if you do start to develop parallel uh, types of systems, de facto, you're going to be deflating them. I mean, they depend on uh, your participation. And, and one of the things in the the U.S. at least, I can't really speak for the rest of the world, but in the U.S. we still do have enough uh, liberty that if everyone, or you don't even need everyone, if a, if a decent percentage of people said, you know what, all of my uh, purchases I've been making uh, at the, the big supermarket chain, I'm going to look for farmers around me who can I can buy directly from, and I'm going to start doing that, for example. That would have a huge impact, and that's sort of both at once. You're de deflating the giants, and you're 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 building up your more local uh, uh, systems, and and um, so so it's got to be both. It's got to be both in the and I, so I know more about the U.S. than elsewhere. So I can. I, sorry about that. I'll have to speak to that more directly. Um, we have mechanisms um, 
for pulling back power. We can't wait, for instance, for the federal government to say, you know what, we actually want to cede this power back to you. You know, you've made a wonderful argument. I understand now where you're coming from. Here you go. So, so, and this is already starting to happen. We have things like nullification. And for instance, in, in uh, New Hampshire, um, a, a proposed law continues to move forward just yesterday, I think it was yesterday, the day before, uh, moved through a committee, which means it's, it's going to be voted on soon. Um, for um, any uh, executive orders that are coming out of the Fed uh, around gun control, et cetera, anything that, that even touches the Second Amendment in any kind of way, nullified in New Hampshire. We will not, uh, inf- not only will, will we not enforce that, but there's a law against enforcing it. Um, hopefully that passes. Um, that's, that's the right thing to do. It, we, these decisions should not be made so centrally. Um, other things like, like that, where, where uh, so there's the anti-commandeering doctrine, which basically says uh, the federal government has no power to coerce uh, state agents to enforce things. So that's slightly softer than the nullification. But these kinds of, of tools are available and, and, and more increasingly used. And, and so that's what we should be focusing on. In fact, you know, to, to um, and I, I've, I've done this elsewhere, and I will say a kind word about um, the Free State Project, which is, exists in New Hampshire, uh, which is a libertarian project. Um, but they've realized, you know, trying to affect anything liberty-minded at the federal level is, is a non-starter. You're wasting your time, you're wasting your money, et cetera. Um, but what you can do is pile a bunch of like-minded people into a state and start affecting the state government. Um, and that has a lot of impact. And in New Hampshire, it's had a lot of impact. And um, we're starting to see the fruits of that now. And so that, I, this, I anticipate the next sort of era of the U.S. to be a reassertion of um, state authority. And you actually see it both from the left and the right. And it happened, for instance, uh, quite a bit through, through COVID stuff, too, where different states were trying different things. Some had technically, I don't know how much they were enforced, like quarantines. On, on boarding border crossings and, and things of that nature. So this is this is where I expect um, the near term uh, future of, of of USA to go. Is is okay? We've had this era where basically all the states were kind of playing nice with the Fed and kind of letting it dictate things. That's that's over at least for now. Um, so so that that's one way that we can kind of uh, pull things back down again. But yeah, I mean there's a lot one can do by simply not participating in the things that, that perpetuate the, these giants and they need, they're hungry. Giants are hungry. So if you stop feeding them, they suffer and they will retaliate, you know, make no mistake about that. Um, but it's, it's necessary. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it's quite uh, a good uh, kind of legal um, kind of substrate that you have in, in, the, in the U.S. Unfortunately, here in, in Romania, things are a, a bit more centralized, even at the local level. And then they're even more centralized because we're part of the European Union. And then even more so because we're like a peripheral member of the European Union and where we barely got in and we still, we're still sucking up to them in, in, in many ways. So it's, it's probably not, not a very, not, not the best of deals we got here but it's amazing how these little nuances of, of, of constitutions and whatnot end up mattering in in kind of more uh less tumultuous times they it looks like ah, just heard of a difference of, of a few words it was no big deal but in the these times with more tension these things start to become 
tools for for one or the other, either the centralizers, the decentralizers. And like, for instance, you look at Canada and they don't really have a bill of rights like we do in the U.S. They have a, some kind of a rights charter. I don't know exactly what it's called, but there's uh, one of my Canadian friends showed me exactly what the problem is. It's that right in the preamble of this charter of rights, uh, there, there's language that basically says, these are the rights we're going to try to give you if we can if we're you know if it's not too inconvenient and obviously i'm paraphrasing that's the basic language is like and it's like wow that matters a lot you these become the the things that you know at at, at, a, at a level uh, uh beneath uh, you know all-out warfare these things are, are important tools um for for wrangling uh power structures and whatnot yeah and i think there's also a big difference between kind of anglo style common law where essentially you kind of have the, the, the negative space between you and the law and you have this a very positivist French style that we've adopted wholesale. And it's all about, you know, if it's if it's not allowed, you need to, you need it to be explicitly allowed in the law. And it really it's, it's quite a constraining just just a, the, the frame, the frame of mind to, to instantiate law in that way. You can see that it reflects uh, it reflects, you know, the, the freedom loving Anglo people versus the the I don't know, uh, law, law and order obsessed yeah no you're exactly right you're exactly right and there's all the difference in the world between sort of these positive statements and these negative statements you know that's obviously one one of the things that that those who are more uh, french-minded in the u.s are pushing are all of these different rights at the federal level you know healthcare is a right housing is a right and it's exactly the real danger there isn't any of those particular ideas say it's it's the shifting from negative rights to positive ones which are completely of a different character and they start compelling people to do particular things as, as opposed to um, compelling people to not uh, uh, infringe on others um, so yeah yeah a absolutely and and uh, common law is, is quite a powerful thing as as is uh, tort law and and these bottom-up types of legal structures are extremely powerful and and um, you know I think these are the kinds of things that that people in, in millennials essentially we need to start wrapping our minds around these and and working with them using what's given and 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 working with it so that we can uh well get out of the the kind of uh, trajectory we're on which is you know what's not clear to those who seek the the central structures is that it's not going to be good for them either people think oh i'm going to be on the right side of this i'm going to be on the top and you sorry you're not very few will be and it's it's going to be miserable for everyone so yeah, um, I think you in, in some tweets or in some place you mentioned uh, dis distributism uh, as kind of an, an interesting, um, in a way, in compromise between full-blown <laughs> libertarian, you know, anarcho-capitalism and, um, you know, controlled, uh, you know, centrally controlled planned economy. Um, I've, I've been looking into this myself and I think it's, you know, it's it sounds great. Obviously, I don't think it's been tried anywhere in, in a, except for maybe very religious communities at a very small scale. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you could explain what it is and then, you know, why, why it might be an interesting proposition. I, I'm not, I don't think I'm a scholar on distributism enough to, to, to authoritatively say what it is, but I will say what, how it's impacted my thinking and, and what I think is, is, is worth uh, folding it into the discussion, why it's worth folding in. Um, so, so it comes, it's, it's kind of a descendant of Catholic social teaching, 
Um, it was G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc who, who started developing this notion of distributism as, as its own uh, kind of political idea. And what's so fascinating if you read them is that where you begin is a critique of capitalism. And it's almost like you could be reading Marx. And, and, and it's, it's focused on the fact that, that there's a tendency to concentration. And this concentration has all kinds of, of side effects and consequences that, that, that are uh, detrimental to, to, to many folks' position in the world. The interesting twist is that where they end up is the polar opposite of Marxism. They say what we need is, is a lot of private ownership, a lot of small-scale private ownership. Sort of the centerpiece of distributism is the smallholder. The, the family with some land who, who produces something, has a trade, and, and, and kind of operates at that trade. Or even, you know, the, the shop too has its place, right? It's not that you, you only need a primary producer and that should always be direct. You know, the shop has its place, but everything's small, 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 small. So private, but small. So they're both hitting on this, this distinction between this public and private and saying things need to be, needs to be a lot of private uh, things in the world. Um, but they're not getting carried away like some libertarians do in, in, in this label of private as, as um, solving all these, these problems by itself. Actually, when private things get too big, they become uh, pathological as well. And especially where we, we prop them up. I'm getting like annoying sounds popping up, so I'm gonna quit that. Um, so so that's, that's where they come from. And that, that's in, in essence the, the, how, how their uh, critique is really, I think, valuable in this space because it's, it's you know, what Marx got right is, is that uh, things uh, in, in a capitalist system and many different kinds of systems, but in a capitalist system as well, things can concentrate to a degree where they become uh, pathological, where people become uh, alienated, um, where where we have this kind of atomized individual in a way that's that's um, detrimental to to our well being and 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 the flourishing of, of humanness. Um, they see that too, and and um, the answer for them is 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 bring it small, bring it local. You know, G.K. Chesterton, one of, one of my favorite quips from him is, you know, keep keep the politicians close enough to kick them. Uh, complete skin in the game type of argument like this is you know you you can't just let people who are essentially disconnected from the system dictate how the thing operates it's it will never end up in something good no matter how good the intentions are and this is one of the things that flows out of 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 looking at the world through, through kind of a system science lens is that pretty much all of the consequences of actions are unintended many 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 more orders of magnitude more of the consequences of things are things that no one intended or are antithetical to what was intended. So you kind of, uh, people's intentions stop mattering so much. It's like, yeah, okay, I hear you want to help, but you're really hurting. So who cares that you want to help or you thought you were helping? Um, so, so, you know, one of the places I will say I've been left um, wanting with distributism as such is, what do you do about it? What, what are the actions you take? And their major um, solution is, is progressive taxation of large things. And I think that's uh, fraught with a lot of problems because never mind the, the, the ethical questions of, of, of is taxing big things fair or whatever. There's actually just, just functional issues like, well, who collects that tax money? What do they do with it? 
who sets those taxes. So you kind of have this implicit uh, need for a central authority who's managing these uh, uh, ta taxation uh, regulations and, and the flows of, of the, the money they bring in. Um, and that breeds its own set of problems. So, so I've been a little bit, I don't want to say disappointed, but I don't think that they've quite hit on everything that would be necessary uh, to actually affect a, a distributist type of structure. Um, not to say that I'm, I'm exactly clear on how we would uh, bring that about in full either, but, but um, recognize there's some work to do there. Yeah, I think it's 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 hard to put a cap on on capital. You know, like you said, Marx Marx identified the the ten tendency for it to to uh, concentrate, to centralize, um, and yeah, it's um it, it's a tough thing to you know say. Oh, okay, you're not really having economies of scale. You're not really having um you know network externalities, which is kind of the big thing now in tech. It's it's pretty hard to to put a cap on things like that because you can really have a small holder uh, owning Twitter. Or you know things like things like that that require a lot of scale in themselves, are, are tricky to to do at that at that scale. So I, I can see. I think this is probably could be part of the solution for local communities in some way. If you want to be part of an, an opt-in community, um, then you know having kind of a distributist uh, lens on on how the local government works, I think that'd be super useful. But yeah, and, and just just generally the the, the fact that. The, the solution to uh, alienation via capital accrual is not large-scale socialism or communism. That's actually just exacerbating the problem. So that's that's the insight that I that I hope that some people who maybe um, have gotten swept up in the critique of, of 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 capital and and see that as the only way. Well, then therefore, what we need is everything to be public in the large scale. But that's got its own problems, obviously. And um, there's another, just the, the insight that smallness is another way, not switch large public, private things to large public things, but actually break things into to smaller pieces and, and, and let them organize at, at that scale. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I feel like the, uh, the um, diagnosis is a bit off. You know, if people are not deprived of, of money they're not i mean i, I think in, in marxist time there were you know there was a lot of you know child labor the industrialization was pretty pretty intense people were actually deprived and you know in terms of material goods at the moment you know you you have obesity crises and a, a lot of alienation and, and all sorts of problems with mental health but sending someone an extra check obviously a lot of people would benefit from it for sure but at the same time i don't think it's going to change something civilizationally be it ubi or be it you know another form of welfare um there's there's a, a different type of malaise at the at the center of this and i think it, it it has to do with scale um and i think it has to do with 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 a, a sad effect of of comfort in a way you know it's uh in, in a way a lot of this alienation is um what's that called a, a revealed preference you know people kind of want to be alone they they want to you know have independence from from you know structures like family and you know they want their they want to be the, the self-making self 
but at the same time it has a negative toll on people so i'm curious what you think how much how much of this is in in a way self-made it's just a just a result of the fact that you know we can now afford not to be in in you know huge families helping each other out and you don't have to put up with the baker you don't have to put up with your alcoholic uncle and you know in a way that's really terrible because it has effects on your being being alone and being atomized but in a way it's also like yeah of course if i can choose not to see old bill today i probably will yeah i, I mean i think you're absolutely right that that there is a there is a large degree of it that that is a process of self-selection and and uh with short-sighted type of of aims and um it's a hard question um, because there is a bit of well, you have to choose it to go the other direction. You have to choose your own shackles, so to speak. You, you're not, you're never going to be free in 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 some kind of an absolute sense. So, like we're talking about arbitrariness with construction, there's also a sense of freedom as arbitrariness, which is similar but coming from a different different angle. And um, it ha it has to start at at sociocultural values and 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 um, our ability to actually um, perceive things at longer timescales. Um, I think we 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 operate in very short timescales today. Um, doing things that are when my experience I can just speak to my experience here is that bringing things more local, my dependencies more local, my activities more local. Um, learning how hard it, it can be, but also how rewarding it can be to, to cultivate land, for instance. When you, when your interfaces become local in that way, your, uh, your perception of timescales changes such that you start to see the longer timescales and the effects they have. And I, so I think it's actually a literal perceptual thing that it's not, it, it, we, we've lost it um, in large part, but it's something that humans can uh, can regain and 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 can have is a different kind of perception that operates over these generational timescales. And um, once that shift uh, starts to take hold, then you get a better um, clarity into what's really giving you freedom and what's really constraining you and enslaving you. And the things that appear on the short term, to, to free you up, okay, now I don't have to see, oh, that old drunker bill, whatever it is, um, you find out that actually over a longer time scale, I'm constrained by all of the things that I'm, I'm avoiding and, and, and uh, all of the things I don't, I'm not obligated to do and this and that, that actually sends you down a very narrow path. There's not much you can do if that's what you're doing. When you start to uh, have these more obligate type relationships in a community, um, there, there's a there's a larger scale freedom that that's that's starting to develop um, that's around autonomy of of the way of life and the way of life is not housed in an individual but in a collective and um, I think that that can be abstractly um, comprehended but I think it can also be concretely perceived but it requires one to start to enter into that. Um, as a matter, how do I say it? it requires one to enter into that to begin for those types of perceptions to bubble up and cohere and become direct and not merely abstract. Yeah, so you, you kind of have to understand it because it's, it's not something that, you know, comes <clears throat> naturally. Um, because like you said, you know, people, pe people's timescales are, are pretty constrained. You, you kind of have the 
you have immediate needs, you want to solve your most expedient problem. And then uh, I, I think this ties into kind of the concept of freedom that we now have, you know, freedom now means, you know, the individual can do whatever, whatever he or she wants. Uh, but, but kind of in, in Aristotelian times, freedom was in a way kind of cultivating um, yourself to be free from the constraints of the body in a way, like, for example, you know, you, you would be you would kind of mind over matter, you know, kind of have, have that kind of stoical freedom from the vagaries of life where you, you kind of gain power, you, you win freedom for yourself to be, to be, a, to cultivate yourself. Um, and it feels like, you know, that concept of freedom is kind of put to the side for the, the, the concept of freedom where, you know, oh, you know, you can have 10,000 types of Chinese food tonight. And that's, you know, that's, that's the ultimate freedom. Um, but, but there's also something tied into this with, with optionality, because you hear a lot of these, you know, Silicon Valley types saying, okay, you know, the best strategy for life is to maximize optionality. You know, how many options is this opening up? How many of, at the same time, I mean, I, this feels like you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot after a while. I think you'd probably good to do this at, at one point. But if you cultivate infinite optionality and you keep doing that, you know, in a way, the only option you have is infinite optionality. You haven't really committed to some things that might make your life better in the long term. Well, well that's right. I mean, I guess I guess what that really says isn't that that the notion that one should cultivate optionality is wrong, but that it's actually a subtle art to do that. And because what you do is you start closing off options, actually, as you, in, in this attempt to maintain them, potentially, and sort of optimize optionality. So if I want to, for instance, uh, if one of the, the options I wish to experience in my life is to, let's say, enjoy an orchard that I planted with my grandchildren. Okay, that's, that actually requires quite a commitment. And it does shave off other options, potentially, with that commitment. But if 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 my freedom is in in having that option uh, as a possibility, something that could really be realized, then then I need to uh, do certain things and I need to commit uh, uh, myself to it in certain ways. And so, indeed, um, if your if your notion of optionality is any number of a set of things at any moment I can kind of switch into and I'm never committed to anything, then in essence, you're actually reducing your options. And and so it's it's. You can almost think of it like an optimization problem, but but um, the the number of of unknowns in terms of conditions of that optimization problem is is too large to actually um, solve for it. So you have to use your intuition, and like I said, it's really an art. Um, so I don't think it's wrong, but it's it's easy for it to be uh, oversimplified in a way that is indeed a reduction of optionality. Um, yeah, and 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 at the same time. Um, it is important for society not to, uh, uh, or an individual to overcommit, uh, to the degree that it would be disastrous if a certain pathway, um, doesn't, doesn't unfold as expected. So it, it, it's, it's not, it's not obvious. Um, I think the, the, like you said, sort of Silicon Valley type of attitude approach is, is naive in the sense that you're describing. Um, and, and as we think about options and, and where we end up, we need to understand that, uh, if, if your idea is like as many branch points in my immediate moment that I could take tomorrow, then yeah, you're actually reducing options in, in, in possibility space and, in, in, in over larger tra trajectories. So I think you're absolutely right. There's, um, I don't know if, if this is a, uh, maybe I'm butchering this concept, but there's this idea of, of optimum grip. 
um, where for, for most kind of problems that you want, like for example, if you're, if you're picking up a, a piece of fruit that's, you know, ripe, you kind of want to have optimum grip, you know, you don't want to keep it too loosely so that it falls out of your hand. And then you also don't want to squeeze the, the living life out of it. So you kind of have to, you have, have that perfect balance. And it feels like you, you, you want to be, uh, for, for many problems like this, I feel like the human mind tends to have a bias for, for absolutes where it's like, okay, what, what are you? What is the label? What is the thing? But for most, most solutions to most problems are kind of a, a, some, some form of optimum grip where, you know, you don't want to, you kind of want to strike the balance. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a complex idea, but, um, yeah. No, but I mean, this is, this is really, um, you know, nonlinearity in general, I mean, what you're describing, if you imagine it almost like as a graph is like an inverted U. And there's sort of, you know, if you get too loose, okay, that's not good, too tight, that's not good. Most things in life are this way, there, there's some kind of a sweet spot. And now that invites the mind to then say, okay, there's an optimization here. The problem is that we can't do the calculations, there's not some set of computations that's going to help you discover what that optimum truly is for something like grabbing an apple you know it's, a, it's pretty obvious for us but for more subtle things life trajectories and and things of that nature um there is some some non-linearity like that where where there's a balance that needs to be struck but where that is actually is impossible to say and so you have to kind of tinker around and feel around and and and, and i really think it is an art it's not a science um and yeah. I, I also wanted to, to ask you, being being a student of complexity, and, and as far as I, I remember, you were saying that this this was kind of something that was common in your household as well. I mean, your your father was, uh, you know, a, taught complexity. He understood complexity. Um, what what was kind of the, the main, the most important thing that you've integrated into your, your life, your personal life, just, just the art of living by understanding complexity? G great question. Um... It is that the most important things in life can't be controlled and that what you can do is nurture them and set up the conditions that they can grow and evolve in healthy ways. Um, and the moment you try to talk about optimal grip, the moment you try to grip it, you destroy it. Um, so th those, those are the things that, um, and I think a lot of people learn this lesson in, in multiple domains the hard way, but you know, whatever you're trying most to hang on to seems to be the thing that, that is most elusive. And, and it's not some, some, uh, magic trick or something. It's, it's that in the gripping, you're destroying it. Um, and in, so, so everything of importance is done indirectly. Yeah. That's, that's hard for, for the, re the rational mind to, yeah. Yes, it is. And, and so my father, you mentioned my father, he, he uh, engineered by training, but not an engineer in. So, so most engineers have this issue where they're trying, they think in terms of control and construction and what is the thing I need to build. And um, as soon, and that works for simple things, but as soon as you hit some threshold of complexity, it's, it's not only insufficient, it's exactly antithetical to what needs to be done. Um, 
obviously you see this in politics. It's like, oh, we have problems. So therefore we need to draw out the, the, the appropriate narrative and, and, and then via that narrative kind of put things into the right place because they're in the wrong place now. And that's kind of the engineering mindset. And um, it's just not how complexity flourishes. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's just so many concepts kind of in, in the space that you are, you're floating in. And you're, you're also a representative of, um, is it Lindy Twitter or? Um, the... I'm 100% I'm not a representative of Lindy Twitter. I have actually find that the, the discussion around Lindy has become clownish and, and absurd. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for triggering you, but yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting space. I've, I don't think I am part of Lindy Twitter. I've, I'm I'm a fellow traveler with some people, but not with with some. Right, right. No, no. I'm 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 I guess I'm Lindy Twitter adjacent. The problem is, I think this Lindy idea is a really important concept that that comes from from the seam, um, um, but it's been it's been made into a cartoon uh, by by that fellow. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I mean, I I I like him. I actually he keeps like uh, um, blocking and unblocking me for some reason. I've never interacted with him, but yeah, whenever I check, there's some there's some status change there. Um, yeah. But it's uh it's an interesting concept. Like I I feel like there's quite a lot of overlap with the kind of post rationalist you know, into trad space with Lindy. Obviously, these are these are there's Lindy's kind of a more secular concept. Trad's a bit more like. I don't know, has some, a bit more roots and it's got all sorts of weird offshoots. Um, but I feel like there's just quite a lot of um, overlap. I, I'm curious, what do you think? You know, what would make something Lindy? What's the time scale? Um, how would one know that it's Lindy just by, by observation across time? I, I mean, okay, to get into the Lindy stuff specifically, if, if you take the, uh, Nassim's framing of it, it's essentially a heuristic by which you're um, making a guess about how long something will live based on how long it's lived. It's a statistical idea. And it actually doesn't say anything about, you know, if something new emerges, will this thing last? You just kind of can't say. Um, so, there, so there's that aspect. There's also the aspect that different kinds of things um, um, by, their, by their nature are either Lindy type of things or not. For instance, uh, a human individual is not Lindy. Why? Because the older you get, the more likely you are to die. A, a, a culture, something like that, could be Lindy. It's a pattern. So things that are sort of about a pattern that can be reconstituted, sort of copied and, and replicated, those things have the potential to be Lindy types of things. Things that are individual instances of things uh, that can break and die in and of themselves, those are not Lindy things. Um, so, so it's sort of classes versus instances in a, in a sense. I'll, I'll kind of inject a different way of thinking about these things that, that I find useful. And this, this comes from Chris Alexander. And Chris Alexander is an architect, but also a, a systems scholar. And um, one of his seminal works is called The Timeless Way of Building. And in that, he really makes it clear that um, there is dis uh, an important distinction between something that's old and something that's timeless. Timeless things come into existence all the time. Um, they don't need to be old. You know, you could build a little cottage in a timeless manner today. And that wouldn't mean that it's, it's it, you know, it's new, but it's, it's timeless. Um, something can be old and not timeless as well. 
So, so I, I actually prefer uh, thinking in terms of this, like what kinds of patterns um, or, or, or even more than what kinds of patterns, what kind of processes uh, that, that, that generate things in the world, what kind of processes are timeless and what kind of processes are not, what kind are kind of bound in their specific historical moment or, or otherwise uh, uh, not, um, not, not harmonious or in concert with, with the way that the world has built itself from, from time immemorial. So I think oldness can be a kind of proxy to that. More old things are timeless because actually it's the way that things have always been done. Um, and it's more recently that we, we've started to do things in a different kind of way. And so the newer something is, the less likely it's be, to be timeless for that reason. Um, but, but yeah, it's, 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 it has to do with, you know, how is the thing generated? Is it generated in a way that's, that's organic and an un unfolding with a sensitivity to the context and an ability to, to adapt to it um, at, at sort of multiple scales? Or is it something developed abstractly in a blueprint um, with a very specific idea without the context sort of uh, implying that there's a blank slate to be, to be painted on uh, and, and, and sort of constructed on? So, so you know, I find that to be extremely, an extremely important distinction because I think a lot of the, the critique of something like traditionalism comes from this idea of, well, you know, what's the logic that just because it's old, it ought to be good or something like that. And, and, and to me, that's actually a somewhat valid critique because that's true. Something that's old could be shit. Like, uh, I don't want something just because it's old, but older things tend to have this timeless quality to them more, more often. Um, and newer things that that's more and more rare, unfortunately, to, to, to find that. Um, and, and, and so, and things, things evolve. In general, evolutionary processes are all over the place. It's not just sort of biological, genetic, it's, it's cultural, it's, it's practice-based, it's all kinds of things. Evolution is a very uh, generic kind of way for things to, to develop uh, form and complexity over time. And so things that have been around a while uh, typically are products of some kind of evolutionary process and, 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 and have uh, functional properties to them that can be quite subtle, um, but, but uh, contribute to their ability to persist. Um, yeah, there's a, that kind of leads me into, into my, my next question. I think it's tied into your, uh, your beef with Jordan Peterson. <laughs> uh, I want to ask. I about... think it's generous to say I have a beef with Jordan Peterson because it implies that he knows I exist. Um, and, and I don't think that he necessarily does, but, but yeah, go on. Oh, well, the, the, the beef, as, as far as I could, I could tell, uh, you, you know, you had, you had some, some harsh words to say about Jordan Peterson. And I mean, obviously I, I don't know the whole context, but I feel like it has something to do with GMOs. Um, and and his support uh, or his him being supported by by some you know big GMO company or something like that. Um, don't know the whole context. You know Jordan Peterson. He's a I don't know. I think I think he's 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 been a, a father figure to many. So I, you know I wouldn't dismiss him out of hand. But um, this is more a question about GMOs than Jordan Peterson because um, I feel like GMOs are, are one one instance of what you were describing before uh, about you know things being. Um, you know, kind of engineered top down and just thrown into an our pre existing ecosystem, and then we'll see what happens. Yeah, okay. So, so I mean, you kind of wrapped it up with, with, with GMOs right there. It's, it's, it's funny because they, because, you know, proponents, shills, et cetera, will tell you, oh, everything's been genetically modified. There's no difference. Well, if that were the case, then why would we be, 
how could we discuss the new technologies? What are the new technologies doing if not something new? And in fact, they are, of course. It's, it's a kind of, oh, we'll design the system. We'll insert the properties into the organism that we believe will you know, improve our business model. And, and without care for these externalities, these ecosystem type of externalities, you know, if you, if you take a, a, an ecosystem that is, where everything is co-evolved, because evolution is always really co-evolution, things are evolving together and actually learning to play nice with one another. That's one of the most important aspects of an ecosystem is that the pieces actually are not just all out to be as, as sort of uh, rapidly consumptive as possible. That actually will, that's a, that's a suicide uh, kind of kind of policy in an ecosystem because you'll you'll uh, overexploit your resources and so um, so so when you take something that doesn't have a coevolutionary history it doesn't need to be GMO in that case it could be like an invasive species this is why we have quote unquote invasive species it's because you're taking something out of its original context putting it in a new context where there's no shared history and 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 that time hasn't elapsed for the play nice kind of dynamics to emerge. Um, so GMO has that problem in a very acute way. Um, new proteins are massively being amplified and synthesized in contexts they've never been before that have uh, clearly detrimental effects. I mean, that's what they're designed for to things like insects. Well, guess what? Insects play very important roles in, in ecosystems. They, they pollinate things. They do all sorts of things. Every, everything in a given ecosystem uh, has a functional role it plays with other things. And, and we don't understand all of them, but they're there and we depend on them. Um, so, so GMOs is, it's, it's this kind of uh, top-down uh, vision of constructing um, systems, but, but putting them in the context necessarily of, of living ecosystems and kind of seeing what happens. And act, in fact, uh, they just released again GMO insects in the Keys in Florida, uh, mosquitoes, and it's like these are these are the kinds of fat-tailed risks that that what's under what's not understood about fat-tailed risks is the fact that yeah most of the time it'll be fine. It's not like oh we guarantee this is gonna destroy the ecosystem. It's like no most of the time you'll roll the dice you'll be all right. Every once in a while you'll be so fucking wrong that you won't even get to regret it. You won't have the opportunity to regret it. You're going to fuck it up so bad. So, so that needs, that's, that's a very important point about the kinds of systemic risks that GMOs have is that, yeah, most of the time you'll be all right. That's not the, you can't use that logic though, because when you're wrong, you're going to be very, very wrong. Um, so that's one thing, you know, I guess I should, you, you brought it up in the frame of Jordan Peterson. So I should say like a bit about how he's wrapped up in that. And in fact, what I saw from him, what, Part of the reason I was upset about uh, the GMO stuff with him is because I was kind of interested in him and I was like, okay, we need some other kinds of voices in this space and he's a, bring a different angle to it. And some of the things he's saying, I, I, I resonate with strongly and agree with. I also saw that he, to me, now this is, this is completely my judgment and, and my perspective, but I saw what seemed to me to be a little too much enjoyment of the limelight, a little too much, um, um, hunger for fame. In fact, I think he, he uh, uh, as he started to sort of rise in popularity, maybe legitimately so with, with organic interest, um, signed on to like a Hollywood agency. Um, it's kind of antithetical to, to kind of stuff he preaches about. Um, started doing these worldwide tours. It was all about talk, talk, talking. And it's kind of a performance art. It becomes a performance art. So I started to see that. Then while I'm in the sort of throes of these, these, uh, uh, arguments around GMO and whatnot, all of a sudden he pops up at Monsanto's uh, yearly ag conference as the special guest speaker 
promoted, you know, by all their, their typical um, PR kind of uh, shill uh, department and, and say, what the fuck is Jordan Peterson doing here? And then, so he's talking at that thing. They're saying, oh, you, you know, and what, what are they doing? They're marketing. They're using Jordan Peterson to market Monsanto. That's what their interest is in this, right? They're not interested in the things Jordan Peterson has to say. It's a marketing thing. That's why they're doing it. So, so he's being used as a marketing thing. Of course, he's being paid for it. That's just how that stuff works. Okay, that's one level. I find that very distasteful. Um, I, I, I looked at the talk. He talked about his ideas. He didn't talk about ag, which is reasonable. He doesn't know anything about ag. Simultaneously, though, he starts tweeting exactly word for word all of the propaganda bullshit that Monsanto puts out. Oh, if you're against GMOs, you're for you're pro starving children. Okay, these are these are like these are like like shill lines that are, in my opinion, very unethical. Like, no, that's not it at all. Actually, I'm trying to protect starving children, all children, all people. Like, this is these are issues that we need to uh, take really seriously. And there was no substance to it. So it was pretty weird of him to show up at this Monsanto conference, simultaneously start tweeting out these, these kind of uh, PR lines. And to me, it's, it's very different than what he's supposedly promoting, which is uh, kind of personal responsibility and this and that, whatever. Um, it just doesn't, doesn't sit well with me. I never could turn my view around on him after that. After all that, he had this kind of, uh, you know, very public kind of breakdown of, of, his health and well-being due to addiction problems. I'm not belittling addiction problems. People have issues and um, they should be taken seriously, treated as health issues, I believe. But again, to me, it looks a bit antithetical to what he's preaching, which is like, how do you bring order into your life? From my perspective, his life is chaotic. He's the last person in the world I would listen to about how to bring order into my life. The last person. Um, so those are my, some of my problems with Jordan Peterson. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting, but I wasn't aware of any of the, of the GMO thing. I just, I, I think you mentioned it just they're in still passing. You're still up there. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a look at that. That's, that's very strange, but it's, it's, it's all, all this GMO stuff. Like I remember like my, my original community on the internet was kind of this, this new atheist, uh, you know, atheism plus type stuff and new uh, and um, gmos were such a big talking point in those communities and it was all about the golden rice and it was all about how people who didn't like the science were all stupid you know obviously everyone in the new atheism fucking loved science and we're all just you know the pre pre-reddit people and we we're making the memes of the golden rice and if i if i remember correctly i don't i don't have i have no idea how i was incepted with this idea that you know gmos is you know the best of science and anyone who speaks against them is is dumb but it was all over the place it was one of the most common concepts in there well they literally i mean 2014 i uh co-authored a paper with nasim talib yunir bariam a couple other uh, uh gentlemen um and we critiqued from a from a systemic risk uh, perspective uh, GMO agriculture and, and wild release GMO generally not just agriculture but any kind of wild release GMO and um, that was extremely eye-opening for me in sort of my trajectory of understanding how the world operates um, because what happened was uh, the PR um, swarms started showing up and these are accounts on for instance Twitter and other social media that are just people who are literally paid to go promote certain ideas on the behalf of certain corporations. And they are PR firms. So for instance, 
Monsanto at the time had hired this firm called Ketchum PR, and it was all these Ketchum trolls and shills that would just show up endlessly in your thing and whatever. They were just they, they weren't there to debate the merits of the technology, the science. They're there to um, amplify a specific a- agenda for a corporation. And, and they really have no idea about any of the science and they certainly don't understand anything about complex systems and systemic risk. And um, they had nothing useful to say about it. And, and, and so, you know, sometimes it's called astroturfing, right? Cause it's meant to look like grassroots. These people are meant to look like they're, oh, I'm, I care so much of the sun. Well, it turns out that like in communities like that, um, they, they were uh, sophisticated enough to target these sort of rationalistic communities and see these ideas. Why? Because if you're really into rationalism, then that all seems to make sense. Like we know how the parts work. We can put it together better than it's ever been put together before because now we understand, right? Well, that that's, I don't really know what post-rationalism is, but maybe it's, it's, it's what I'm about to say. Um, when you take rationalism to the limit, one, one of its virtues actually is that it can deconstruct and defeat itself. And this is exactly what uh, like Kurt Gödel did, for instance, and others did, Turing did, and some others, Wittgenstein. Um, you can actually show that this sort of rational mindset has very hard limits that reality does not obey. Reality operates beyond those limits. And so things like GMO, actually, it's not that we will tell you what is uh, uh, exactly going to go wrong. It's that there's no way you can can rule those things out in a, in a, in a systemic, in like a, a comprehensive way. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, rash, there is a virtue there that if you take it to the limit, it can, it can find its own boundaries. Uh, but, but most of the time people are operating well below that boundary. They become seduced by the idea that this kind of covers everything. And in fact, it's not only that, uh, we can sort of intuit that it doesn't, it, it, it technically doesn't in a very, um, precise way. So, um, yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting GMO is a very interesting kind of uh, touch point for all these ideas because of the way it seems scientific. It's a technology, et cetera, um, but it actually gets right at the limits of, of what we can actually uh, say about how the world operates and, 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 and predict what's going to happen, which pretty much our powers of prediction in, in, in the midst of complexity are, are non-existent. Yeah, yeah, I I remember kind of the the argument was mostly around, um, you know, because of the agricultural revolution. You know, Norman Borlaug he saved a billion children, and then we were like, you're kind. Of, the framing was that you were kind of killing a billion children if you weren't for the next step in the ag revolution, which is GMOs. So it's uh, it, it was a bit of a I don't know a bit of a, like a, like an eschatological you know oh this is this is the new millennium you know we were entering the age of science saving all the children um, yeah not not very rationalistic if I look back at you it you got a word for that pedophrasty where you where you uh, unethically raise children into the conversation to try to try to emotionally win the argument there so yeah um, it's a dirty move. You know, anytime I see it, I just block. Done. <laughs> That's good. You, you're, you're a, a good blocker. I think your, uh, your policy for blocking is quite healthy, and uh, yeah, I, I strive towards it. <laughs> it. It certainly makes my experience a lot more enjoyable. That's for sure. That's the thing. You know, you reduce complexity. You know, well, who, who needs too much? <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's noise otherwise that's the thing complexity is not just about uh, a lot of stuff and a lot of complication it's about sort of uh 
appropriate uh, uh, degrees of, of order and disorder and, and how those interrelate to each other. So that's another, you're talking about sort of balance points before. So order and disorder, this, these are things that are always existing in balance as well in, in living systems. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's one thing I'll take with me and I'll try to put it into my blocking policy. I feel like I'm, I'm still a bit too, too liberal um, or not, not liberal enough. Um, bef before I, I let you go, I want to ask you the question of the show which is, uh, do you have a thinker, could be a writer, could be a scientist or not, uh, that uh, was influential to you, but you know, maybe someone subversive uh, that you think deserves a bit more uh, limelight, a bit more attention from people that people should read or look up? My, my, my go-to here is, is a fellow I've already mentioned, Chris Alexander. Um, everyone should, should, he's an architect, but but also speaks to 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 life and 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 so I always recommend him. But although I will say I've seen in the last uh, year or so he's blown up on Twitter quite a bit. That that meme has gotten out there, and there are people a lot of people reading him and stuff. So so maybe he's a little too known for this. Um, one of my favorite thinkers. I'm actually reading one of his his sort of major life works for like the third or fourth time right now called Life Itself. Is a fellow named Robert Rosen. And um, this, he's absolutely, he's a theoretical biologist and his arguments are absolutely in the realm of, of science and, and, and so maybe don't speak so directly to, to social issues and stuff like that. But in the realm of science, his, his arguments are absolutely subversive. Some of the things we take most for granted about uh, how we frame and model systems, he takes those to task and, and, and uh, essentially shows how, um, we have so many of our assumptions inverted about what's general, what's special, um, what systems are, um, the difference between how we characterize a system and what a system is in its essence. Um, th th there's technical things here, so I don't know how worth it is to mention, but like, for instance, we, we, we tend to think of, of and, and this is permeates all of science, physics, everything, systems we associate with states, the state the system is in and the states it moves through, and then the laws, the natural law that uh, move the system from one state to another. That's sort of the foundational uh, framing of physical science. That's what he takes to task, which is a fascinating thing to question what seems to be unquestionable. And he does it in a, in a remarkable way. Uh, he leverages category theory to do it. It's not an easy read, uh, or any, any of his work is, but it's absolutely profound. Um, so on the nature of causality, really, in its essence, um, you know, Aristotle had four um, categories of causality, three kind of cohere to what we typically think of as, as scientific reasoning, sort of the, the past um, by necessity uh, leads to the future via the, the, the lawful uh, progression of things. Aristotle had a fourth cause, um, final causality, that, that's associated with the idea that um, the why of something, why it happens, um, is often uh, uh, attributed to what that causes. So, for instance, if I'm going to say, well, what caused you to pick the apple from the tree? You know, I could have a story about your nervous system, your pattern recognition, all these kind of past to future types of causality. Um, but in, in, in another reasonable answer, seemingly reasonable answer, is that, well, I picked an apple because I wanted to eat an apple. But I eat the apple after I picked the apple. So if the cause of picking the apple is eating the apple, then was the future causing the past? Well, that doesn't, that doesn't jive with physics. 
Um, so how do you reconcile that? So his, his life's work is, is really around how, how, first of all, let's take that kind of causality seriously. Let's not uh, say it's an illusion or something. Let's, let's admit that it's a kind of emergent property of, of the kinds of living systems that, that we are. And then let's, let's take that seriously and let's see what we can do with it. Um, so very subversive in that way. Um, not sure it's the kind of subversive you're looking for, but. No, that's, that sounds super fascinating. I mean, obviously, you know, it sounds also like it could be quite, quite technically serious to, to take on, but I, I like the, the idea of, you know, analyzing causality and, 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 and you know, maybe questioning, you know, like the, the rationalistic frame, that's kind of been my, my main, my main interest in the, in the last few years. Once I've, I'm now probably what, what would be called a post-rationalist, whatever that is. I mean, yeah, like you said, it's just another label, but yeah, I've, I've, I've felt the edges of it and now I'm, I'm looking around to see what, what, what could be interesting around that. Well, if, if post-rationalism means out-rationalizing the rationalizers, then I'm all for it. That's, that's what I like to do. Yeah. Well, perfect. <laughs> we'll make a club. Um, thank you so much. This was this was super interesting. Um, I'm, I'm really glad uh, we, we got to do this. Uh, is there a place you want to direct people to uh, something they should buy, subscribe to, um, interact with? Uh, just Twitter. Normonics on Twitter. N-O-R-M-O-N-I-C-S. Easiest place to get in touch with me. Um, yeah, if I want, so I'll shill one thing. I, I run a course. Um, I've been doing it for, for about a year now. Um, it's like a full semester style course I do synchronously. I've had a lot of uh, success with that so far, but if people are, are if any of these ideas are, are, are really engaging to anybody and they want to know where to dig in more, I would say, you know, to have a look at that and see if that's of interest to you. Excellent. And uh, also, uh, yeah, just follow follow Joe on Twitter. It's, it's a very worthwhile follow. Also follow his wife, Chelsea Norman. Uh, yeah, she, she's great. So, yeah. And also, yeah, thank you to you and thank you to Chelsea as well. She's given me so, so much great advice with, uh, with this whole physical process that I'm undergoing right now. <laughs> she, she's the real wisdom in the household. I just, I get to pontificate while she actually handles the, the real shit. So nice. Yeah, well, as it should be, as it should be. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you so much for coming on, Joe. Thanks, Alex. Really nice to, to be here. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>